The episode you're about to hear includes some emotionally challenging content. It's not a bummer the entire time, but we do dip into some pretty heavy stuff here and there. If you're going through some rough feels right now, this episode might not be helpful. Instead, please reach out to someone you can trust. If you can swing it, therapy can be super useful. I've personally benefited a lot from it. Make sure you find a therapist who works for you. Everyone's different. If you're in the middle of a mental health crisis right now, first, that fucking sucks. I'm really sorry you're going through that. Second, you're not alone, even if it feels that way. If you need someone to talk to and you live in the US or the UK, you can text HOME to the crisis text line at 741741. They're there for you whenever you need support for any painful emotions you're experiencing. It usually takes less than five minutes to connect with a trained crisis counselor. If you're having suicidal thoughts, please, please, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Both services are completely free. Still here? Okay. Here comes the opening thingy. It's Now or Never, a podcast about the survival of our species, the end of the world as we know it, and the beginning of a new one. Welcome to the Anthropocene, an exciting new geological age marked by radioactive debris from atomic blasts, ubiquitous microplastics, and the sixth mass extinction event on the planet. They say you gotta get your head right when a bad place now, and eventually laid out on the carpet now, bottle in a one-hand Mackinch cup, it's been a while since I knew I messed up. I was messed up, I was up late, not getting sleep all over the place. A disgrace. Get your head right. Get out of this fast spot. Get up from the carpet. Put away that cup. Oh, you're not messed up. You're not sleeping right You're all messed up You gotta get some sleep right It's two minutes to midnight on the doomsday clock I'm Jeremy Thank you so much for listening to my little emotional support podcast In this episode... We'll talk with Sonia, my philosophy buddy from way back in those college years. She now works as a professional dog trainer in the Seattle area. We cover a lot of ground in our conversation. Star Trek crews, social media, existential learnings, and what to do about that whole Nazi problem. But first, on May 30th in Australia, the National Center for Climate Restoration, or Breakthrough, published their policy paper, Existential Climate-Related Security Risk, a Scenario Approach. Warning, a doomsday future is not inevitable, but without immediate drastic action, our prospects are poor. We must act collectively. Another bit from near the paper's conclusion, quote, 
dramatic action is required this decade if the hothouse Earth scenario is to be avoided. To reduce this risk and protect human civilization, a massive global mobilization of resources is needed in the coming decade to build a zero-emissions industrial system and set in train the restoration of a safe climate. This would be akin in scale to the World War II emergency mobilization. There is an increasing awareness that such a response is now necessary. End quote. NPR reports that literally a billion acres of U.S. land are now at risk of catastrophic wildfires. According to the chief of the U.S. Forest Service, fire season is not an appropriate term anymore. The Trump administration's solution, the Active Forest Management Executive Order, includes increasing commercial logging on federal land. Conservation groups are calling bullshit on that move. When asked for comment, original and legally distinct fictional ursine environmentalist Smoggy Bear said, That won't do jack shit to prevent forest fires, you complete fucking buffoon. Speaking of President Trump, Guess who's rolled back, or is in the process of rolling back, a total of 83 environmental protection rules to date, including regulations to curb air and water pollution, protect threatened animal species, and one that required oil and gas companies to report methane emissions. Yeah, that rule's already gone. By the way, methane is 84 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So we probably don't need to know how much of that they're shitting into the atmosphere. Probably not important. Did you guess President Trump? Because President fucking Trump. The Washington Post reports, quote, White House officials barred a State Department intelligence agency from submitting written testimony this week to the House Intelligence Committee, warning that human-caused climate change could be possibly catastrophic. Thanks, White House. Speaking of White House officials being complete toolbags, when asked whether he thought climate change was man-made in a recent interview with the Washington Times, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said some dumb shit like, The climate's been changing a long time. There's always change. Then reassuring everyone that we would just adapt, and maybe people would move to different places, and we'll just figure it out. Not too surprising, since this is the guy who said the Arctic's shrinking sea ice would open exciting new opportunities for trade. Hooray! Money. Way to find that silver lining, I guess. But hey, Republicans don't have a complete monopoly on ecological dick moves. Despite popular support, the DNC just announced that it will not host a climate-focused debate. On top of that, any candidate who attends one will be barred from participating in DNC debates. For real. I'm sure this has nothing to do with Joe Biden's weak track record on climate policy, for which Greenpeace graded him a D-, or the plagiarism allegations surrounding his new climate plan. Joe, see me after class. It's not like the DNC ever favors one candidate over another. Like, I don't know, if like there's like an established candidate with more super PAC funding, who's more Wall Street friendly, whose policies tend to serve big businesses. <sighs> Love and light. <sighs> Positivity, optimism, care bears. Gimli and Legolas' wholesome bromance.
Okay. On May 6th, the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services released a 40-page summary for policymakers of their upcoming 1,500-plus page full report. The report offers the combined knowledge of 145 experts from 50 countries, including indigenous and local voices, as well as scientific studies. The scary parts shouldn't be too surprising to any listeners, but it's always an emotional gut punch. Basically, human beings are utterly dependent on the life-supporting safety net of nature, and we're destroying the whole thing, to the tune of 75% of land areas, 66% of oceans already being severely affected, 85% of wetlands, gone, deserts where there should be not deserts, over 400 oceanic dead zones that should be oceanic life zones, and entire insect populations are dropping like, um, if all that sounds bad, don't worry. You passed our free hearing test. This is real bad. And if we don't get our collective shit together right fucking now, it's going to keep getting worse. From page five of the summary, quote, goals for conserving and sustainably using nature and achieving sustainability cannot be met by current trajectories, and goals for 2030 and beyond may only be achieved through transformative changes across economic, social, political, and technological factors. A number of policy suggestions are given, and key leverage points are identified, including, quote, enabling visions of a good quality of life that do not entail ever-increasing material consumption. Seems like something that's worth exploring. Of course, we'll need to get people into office who give a shit about any of this. Meanwhile, biodiversity continues to plummet. Some of our closest living relatives are having heroic standoffs with the bulldozers destroying their homes, and human beings continue their, in the words of New York Magazine's Eric Levitz, globe-spanning murder-suicide. Greta Thunberg said it best in her speech at Davos, quote, We can still fix this. We still have everything in our own hands. But unless we recognize the overall failures of our current systems, we most probably don't stand a chance. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to act as if our house is on fire. Because it is. If I may extend Greta's metaphor a bit, it's not just our house that's on fire. Not only our nuclear family of homo sapiens who are at risk. It's the whole damn neighborhood. It's all our friends. Our whole extended family. <sighs> Positivity. Summer steam sale. Crispy potato chips. <sighs> Lately, I've found myself in a weird emotional zone where, on the one hand, I'm hoping we reform our society as quickly as possible as much as possible, to prevent human suffering, to maybe buy ourselves more time to figure out how to save our skin, and to scale down and transition with intention. But also knowing that the longer industrial civilization lasts, the more damage we'll be doing to the living beings around us, the more greenhouse gas we'll be emitting, the more we'll probably grow, the more unsustainable we'll become, and if collapse is unavoidable, the harder we'll fall. And then there's the knowledge that the sooner this falls apart, the better it'll be for the rest of the ecosystem. So there's like a Gaian accelerationist emotional current. It's not misanthropic. I don't want humans to suffer. I don't want any more animals to go extinct. 
When I talk about collapse, I'm not forecasting a moment when the proverbial shit hits the fan and everything changes all at once. That's not usually how collapse happens. Collapse happens slow, then it happens fast. Or, to steal a line from Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, gradually, and then suddenly. Anyway, that's what's been on my mind. If you're interested in joining the always upbeat conversation on our Discord server, send me an email at jeremy at itsnowerneverpodcast.com, tweet at me, send me a Facebook message, carrier pigeon, whatever. I'll get you an invite link. I've been experimenting with Twitch lately, and I think I'm going to get something going weekly. You can follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash nowornever. I'll be announcing the streaming schedule on our Facebook page or on Twitter at nowornevercast. I'm thinking we'll explore collapse and climate change aesthetics and concepts through indie and sandbox games. Also, just kind of talk about recent uh, relevant scuttlebutt zeitgeisty shit, stuff that doesn't really go in the podcast that I'm still mulling over or may not work in sort of like a formal structured setting, but um, it could be fun. All right, let's get this thing going. It is a gorgeous day here in Seattle, and I am loving that. It's like 73, sunny. Nice. How many of those do you get a year? Really gorgeous days in Seattle. Enough for me, but just barely. Okay. (laughs) So I did go on a Star Trek cruise. I desperately want to hear about that. It was surreal and wonderful. Have you ever been on any sort of cruise? Nope. I hadn't either. Uh, Shout out to uh, Susie Stewart and Leif Johnson, if they get around to listening to this. It was the second time they had gone, and they were so enthusiastic about it. And I wanted to go, but I didn't have the money, and they made it happen for me. And I'm super, super grateful. Thank you, Leif and Susie. So you get to Florida and you get on this massive boat and then you are just on this floating city and um, you run into Star Trek cast members left and right. Wait, actual Star Trek cast members or people costumed as? Both. I almost ran straight into John Delancey. Oh, really? Yeah. There's all these events that happen on the cruise. Uh, Nana Visitor, she was uh, Kira, led a guided meditation. And that's what's gotten me into meditation at all. It was it was wonderful. Was it a traditional Bajoran meditation style? <laughs> no. That's the coolest thing is that all of these little extra bits and bobs that the actors were doing didn't have anything to do with Star Trek necessarily. Gates McFadden, she taught a tap dancing class. I didn't go to that, but I heard it was pretty great. The uh, doctor from Voyager, the hologram doctor, was in a stage show. But during that, I got to sit next to Quark, Armin Shimmerman. And he he did a, a panel on Shakespeare. It was really good. This sounds way cooler than I even thought. I thought it would just be like some dudes in costumes being like, oh, no, we need you on the bridge for the, your scheduled session of being on the bridge. I mean, there's there's a fair amount of that. Like, you you know, pictures and like little other types of events and things. And it's, it's a huge meetup. And they're trying to make money everywhere they can, of course. But um, there's a lot of really, really cool stuff, too. Next year's that that is being um, held in March is a Voyager reunion. Nice. They cruise around the Delta Quadrant. Uh Yeah, hope you get back. We stopped in Honduras and Mexico. So I got to hang out on gorgeous beaches 
with my friends while Jordi LaForge walks by. I would be full of anxiety this whole time. Well, you can also be really drunk the whole time if you want to be. I don't know if that helps. That does. <laughs> that would help. <laughs> yeah, it was a great time. And it was fun making Star Trek friends. I'm not as hardcore as maybe someone who's been on a Star Trek cruise needs to be. <laughs> that needs to be, but boy, there were definitely some experts. And it was really fun to be around them because they were so enthusiastic about what they were doing. And that's contagious and it feels great. Oh, it sounds awesome. Oh, man. Internet people, though. Oh, my God. I have scaled back all of my interactions online. I don't comment on Reddit. I don't comment much on Facebook. I don't participate in anything online where anything can be directed at me. And if I do, it just racks me with anxiety. I hate it. I totally get that. I was really getting into Twitter for a while, mm -hmm. but I was noticing like, like the more time I spent on Twitter, the worse I felt. Facebook is kind of the same way. Like there are all these like local Facebook groups or whatever, but I just kind of lurk. Otherwise, I'm like tempted to get into arguments with people and I never feel good about getting into arguments never with feel good. people. Ever, ever, ever. And I have a small business. And if I piss somebody off on the internet, and they link it back to my business, there could be repercussions. That's why my name on Facebook is actually not the name that I have associated with my business, which I changed because I got paranoid about it. And then I stopped commenting on anything. So I could probably change it back. But I also don't Hair. So I forget about it a lot. This is like real shit of this little moment in time, actually, I feel like is like navigating this point where literally everyone is on Facebook, and all of your online presences want to be connected to all of your other online presences, like it's sort of incentivized for that. And you can't you can't say anything in a shroud of anonymity, even a little bit. It is all connected. And even people that is none of their business, they can get into your business. I'm not okay with it. Yeah, I totally get that. In a way, like doing this podcast thing is like a way for me to try to overcome a lot of this anxiety about like putting myself out there or saying what I think and feel about things. So I've sort of tended not to in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But like doing this has definitely opened me up to a lot of anxiety. It's like it's trading one anxiety for another. And I get that with cutting myself off from online interactions, too. Because I feel like I'm kind of missing out on communicating with people in this different way. Like, like I'm missing out on human interaction, but I don't truly believe that I am. No, totally. Like, I know there's people that do make Twitter really work for them. And, and so I'm like, well, maybe I should try to use Twitter, right? But anytime mm -hmm. I try to do that, I feel like, like, this makes me feel like shit. Like, and the more, like, mm -hmm. I attempt it, the more I feel like shit. So I pull back, but then like a couple of years later, I'm going to be going back in being like, maybe I should give it another shot. Maybe there's this is a source of quality conversation or something like that. I don't know how this will come out tone wise, but I am so tired of trying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like, there's so many things that I have either tried to do. And for one reason or another, they don't work out. And that's fine. Like it's experience and whatever. But I am kind of done with pushing myself and striving to be better. And I'm really concentrating on accepting myself for who I am and the abilities that I have. Actually, that sounds really healthy. We have this weird, like, constant self-development, like, develop yourself as a product. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's gotten so much worse just in the past couple decades with the rise of the internet and this, like, digital narcissism. Mm -hmm. But the idea of this, like, neoliberal, consumerist, like, you are a product, market yourself as a product, you are a personal brand, be a social media influencer. 
I have like a profound distaste for that. To me, that seems inherently dangerous. So if you're talking about just being who you are and learning to appreciate and accepting that about yourself. And make a living as that. I've had so many jobs where you are pushed, like the upsizing and the suggestive selling and trying to get people to do things that they don't already want to do. Yeah. I can't do that anymore. And I could make you know more money maybe doing something like that. But I hate it. It's weird to me how normalized that is for like little sales tactics and stuff like that. That whole like marketing publicity angle is manipulative. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's so gross to see like sales tactics being applied to personal interaction now. Now that everybody's their own brand and communication now has this financial incentive, like, well, the more attention you get, it's not just people like noticing you and looking at you and you getting like social rewards from that but it's like money yeah you could get money out of it now it's completely commercialized human interaction I, i'm 100 on board with what you're saying oh i know you are and that's why <laughs> i like your podcast yeah i just want to be able to do things that i think are beneficial to the community i wish i could do the job that i do and not ever charge um although my job wouldn't exist if if we had a society where people had more time at home to walk their own dog and on the episode, you were talking about the hunter-gatherer life and uh, how much more time people had. And I think about that a lot. Nobody would need a dog walker. Nobody would need a dog trainer necessarily. Maybe a trainer. I wouldn't be needed. I could do something else. I'd be a garbage man. We need garbage people. Like, yeah. Not garbage people. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I get what, Like, there's a lot of industries, I think, that wouldn't exist if people just actually had the resources to live a full life. Like, would fast food exist? Does anyone really love fast food? Would anyone get fast food if we didn't have this really deep sense of this, like, wage slavery tied concept of time at all? There is the nigh addiction to salt and fat. I mean, that's another creepy thing, too. Like, fast food is engineered to make you want it more. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think anyone loves fast food. The people who are the most addicted to fast food, I have trouble believing that they really love the food or even that they're really tasting the food much at all. Like, there's not much there. There's the, there, there's the fat and the salt and the sugar. There's the fat and the salt, and that's all, all you're looking forward to. You can get any fast food, and uh, and it fulfills that. You're right. I, like, I don't, I don't know if there are people anymore who are diehard Burger Kingsians. What'd you call, like, a, a burger surf? Are there burger <laughs> surfs? God, some of that stuff is so gross. I And I definitely still eat it at least once a week. Some kind of trash. Yeah, because you crave it. Like, I crave it. I, I fucking crave potato chips all the time. It kind of comes back to uh episode with Glenn. We are talking about capitalism's effect on food. But we didn't really explore this part of it, where capitalism turns food into an addictive substance. Like, capitalism weaponizes food to, to enslave you to it. Any means necessary to get you to buy another one of those things. You're listening to Stop Snacking Forever. Listen to the soothing sounds of my voice and relax. You're sinking into your body deeper and deeper. A little bit deeper. A little deeper. No, wait. Back up. Just a little bit. There. You went a little too deep. We almost lost you for a second. Feel the deep 
deep relaxation wash over you. Feel your toes relax, your feet relax, relax your ankles, your legs, release any tension in your booty. No more booty tension. Don't laugh. This is very serious. Good. Relax. Now take a deep breath and release. Feel the deep relaxation in your stomach. Your stomach is relaxed and free and empty because there are no potato chips in it. And that's okay. Relax your chest, your arms. Feel relaxation in your head. Relax your shoulders, your knees, toes. Relax your eyes and your ears, your mouth and your nose. Head, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes. Good. Relax and release all the tension in your muscles. Relax your hands. Feel your grip releasing. Your grip over your wallet just melts away. And remember, our Stop Smoking Now Deep Hypnosis 4-Part Audio Cassette Tapes are only $49.95 for a limited time only. Act now. Good. Now feel the complete and total relaxation. Now picture a bag of potato chips. Crisp, crunchy, salty, delicious potato chips. Now imagine you reach out toward the bag to take a potato chip. Hell no, you'll ruin your appetite. No potato chips for you. But that's okay. You don't need them. You are free from your cravings. You are happy just eating carrot sticks and lettuce. Just lettuce and like kale, Swiss chard, that kind of thing. Your favorite food now is leaves, basically. You don't even like potato chips anymore. Too oily and salty, too crispy, crunchy, golden. And like half the bag is just air. Potato chips don't even tempt you anymore. Relax. No tension. Mm. No cravings. No worry. No thinking, did I remember to pay that bill? Stop worrying, I said. Anniversary's coming up. When am I going to get my partner? Stop it. No more worry. Stop Smoking Now Deep Hypnosis 4-Part Audio Cassette Tapes makes an excellent gift for any occasion. Only $49.95 for a limited time. Mmm. You are completely free from all junk food cravings. 
And when you wake up, you won't even think about potato chips ever again. And if you ever see a potato chip, you'll say to it, I rebuke you, potato chip! Damn you to hell! There, there aren't very many jobs that I wouldn't do. I've had a lot of different jobs and I like having had a lot of different jobs. I don't like having to have a job, but I do like working. I don't like the feeling, like the fear that I'm going to end up like homeless uh, mm. and vilified for being homeless. You know, God help you if you didn't study the right, you know, quote unquote, right stuff in college and you don't end up with a job right out of the gate. Too real. Too real. It, yeah, I know it is. You and I met in the philosophy program. So yeah, I'm a dog trainer now. I was, And before I was a dog trainer, I was an electrician. Um, I didn't use that philosophy degree for anything. I don't regret getting that degree. I really think that it benefited my life quite a lot. But I didn't get a job out of it. I didn't get any marketable skills. I came from a family. They didn't prioritize college or anything. I didn't really have a lot of direction from my family in general. And like I went to college a lot later than most people. I think I was 26. I was like, you know what? I've been working dead-end jobs. Actually, at the time when I decided to go to Western, I was working at a dog ranch. and But I didn't see a future in that, which I think is really hilarious. Um but I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to college. You'd think that if that was my thinking, that I would have picked something other than philosophy. But actually, I was hoping to teach English overseas, which you can make really good money at. Um, and you need a, a bachelor's degree. So I got a degree. And I learned a lot about other ways people can live. You know, I grew up strip malls and darkness and, like, just not very hopeful people and it was cool to to meet people that came from other backgrounds it definitely changed everything for me and i wouldn't take it back for the forty seven thousand dollars that i owe <laughs> i wouldn't i still wouldn't trade it it's too much debt for me to ever repay probably but the experience was so necessary but you learned how to think like the art of thinking yeah. And regardless, it, maybe it had no impact on your career, but it must have had an impact on how you think on your oh, like yeah. the richness of your inner world. Absolutely. And maybe studying philosophy has just taught me how to analyze how to be happy, how to evaluate things for myself. And if that's all I got out of it, then that's fine. Not that I like write out formal arguments when I have something that I have to figure out for my internal self. Do you use your ability to determine when myriological symbols <laughs> constitute a hole in your dog walking business on the day to day? <laughs> I never did take that particular class, but I that sounds right. Was that right? Or like you pulled it out of your ass, but was that right? Did Maybe. all of those words like make sense together? <laughs> I'd like to think they did. I mean, I could be completely, maybe I made up the word myriological, but I think no, it means No, something. that one's legit. <laughs> myriological is definitely in symbols. There's stuff and things. Oh man. I hope none of the profs listen to this. <laughs> 
Reason sets out to know the truth, to find the form of a notion what, for meaning and for perceiving, is a thing, for it is certain itself is reality, certain or concretuality is nothing else but it. Reason sets out to know the truth, its thought is itself a ipso concrete reality. Reason sets out to know the truth, the inherent and essential reality is a beyond, remote from itself, its attitude towards the latter is thus that of idealism. Reason sets out to know the truth, to it, looking at itself in this way, it seems as if now, for the first time, the world has come into being. Reason sets out to know the truth, reason remains in this case, a restless search, which in its very process of seeking declares that it is utterly impossible to have the satisfaction of finding. Did you know you can clicker train a gator? Get out. I don't know why you would clicker train a gator. I just know that you can. Any animal could be clicker trained. Do you know what clicker training is? It's when you train something with a clicker. <laughs> Do you, are you otherwise familiar with it at all? No, you're 100% gold star. All right, I one. understand the whole thing then, I assume, because <laughs> Dunning-Kruger effect. What is clicker training? Clicker training is when you use a marker, usually a device called a clicker that makes a click sound, but it can be any sort of auditory or visual that can pinpoint a moment. And then what you do after that can reinforce the behavior that you are marking. So if I want, I'm going to have to use a dog because I never clicker trained a gator. If you want a dog to sit, you might lure them until their butt hits the floor. And as soon as their butt does, you click and then you give them a treat. And they associate the click with getting a treat later. So it's like a bridge because you can't stuff the treat in a dog's mouth at just the right time. You need something to pinpoint the moment when they did the thing that will result in a reward. Oh, that's really interesting. Because that makes me think of like video games. There's like a the you did it sound or like a, a you got a thing sound. But you don't get the thing right away all the time necessarily. I still get really happy when I just hear the you got the item sound effect from Zelda. <laughs> sure. But it's, that's self-reinforcing, getting the right thing in the video game that gives you a, a, a bit of a rush. So the obvious question for me to ask is, can you click or train a person? In a way, it's harder, I would think, because we can use speech. So you haven't click or trained your partner. How did you become a dog trainer? How did you get your training? I went to the Northwest School of Canine Studies here in Seattle with uh, Christine Dahl is the professor, and she is incredible and and it's really great it's really intense too the final test for that that program is harder than anything else i've ever done academically but i was an electrician and then i was diagnosed with a heart condition and so i couldn't be an electrician anymore and the department of vocational rehabilitation paid for retraining so i got to go to school a little bit more can i ask about your heart condition because I, I didn't know about sure. that like, what was the condition and what is the, the danger to you? So it was originally diagnosed as pulmonary arterial hypertension, which is incurable and progressive. And that was really scary. Um, like, really, really scary. I thought that I was never going to feel better than I did, that it was only ever going to get worse. <clears throat> Had that wrong diagnosis for a year. And then... During one of my monthly echocardiograms that I was going to have to get for the rest of my life, a tech saw something odd and they decided that they needed to do an intertracheal echocardiogram in which they found that I had something called an atrial septum defect. The wall between the right and left side had a 2.5 by 2.7 centimeter hole in it. I had a big hole in my heart mm. and, and blood just flowed 
uh, back and forth between there. It didn't go through, not all of it went through the lungs and out to my body and stuff like that. And that explained a lot. So they, um, <clears throat> they closed it up a month after that uh, new diagnosis. And while the, the hole is closed up, I still have some hypertension, but um, there actually isn't any more danger. It's fine. I'm actually going to go on a 26-mile hike at the end of the month. Oh, that's awesome. And I'm glad this story had a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. The funniest part of that story, though, is the very first diagnosis. I was in a cardiologist's office on Valentine's Day, and he was telling me that half my heart was too big. Half of your heart is too yeah. big. I have right heart hypertension. <laughs> I thought it was really funny. Half too big of a heart on Valentine's Day in the cardiologist's office. It's interesting how like almost anything that affects the heart lends itself almost too easily to symbolism. Mm-hmm. Like even having a hole in your heart is like it sounds poetic. Every year on the anniversary of it getting plugged up, I try to eat a heart of something. Mm-hmm. It's usually artichokes though. Not targ. I don't know okay. what a targ is, but I can't do that. That was my attempt. At, but actually, it's from Star Trek: The Next Generation. You see, Klingons oh, no. enjoy a delicacy oh, known as the heart of Targ. Good job. You should go on that cruise. If you were to go on the cruise, uh, would you put together a costume? You gotta at least take something for the holodeck dance party. Does a holodeck dance? So, what is that? What? Tell me about the holodeck dance party. <laughs> it's just there's a DJ and there it's a dance floor. Like it's. There is no holodeck or anything. I mean, you're you're being very casual about this, but you're asserting that it wasn't a holodeck. Mm -hmm. But how do you know for sure that the DJ was a real person? Oh, you know, I never did talk to him or anything. Gotcha. Yeah, you sure did. Let's go back to this heart stuff. That (laughs) that must have been a hell of a year when you're thinking that this is going to affect the whole shape of your life from then on out. Oh, yeah. It was a hell of a year. Every now and again, I think back to previous points of my life, and I don't know how how I did it because I was so I was an electrician. I was still an apprentice. My mom was. I want to be charitable and put it delicately. My mom was having some very difficult times, and we were living uh, in the same apartment as adults, like. It's not like I've been living with my mom this whole time, but we moved in together um, on purpose as adults. And that was that was the whole thing, too. But she was having a very hard time and we parted not on good terms. So that was happening. The heart thing was happening. My apprenticeship was ending and I had to take a big test for that. And I was actually a journeyman electrician for a year after the diagnosis before I quit because it was too hard. It was never going to get any easier uh, and within a week, uh, the tech found the thing and it got closed up. And uh, and so I probably could have gone back. But once I was out and had reconciled with not making $35 an hour plus benefits for the next 20 years, once I was out, I was out. And I really like what I'm doing right now. So I'm glad that that, that it happened that way. But but yeah, it was a it was a crazy year. And even thinking back to... When I first moved back here to Seattle and I had two jobs uh, and volunteered at the animal shelter and was on the board of Sketchfest Seattle and I just did so much stuff. And now, nowadays, I go to work and I have 
the few events with friends. And that's about all the time and space I have. Like I feel just as busy as ever, but there have been times in my life when I've done so much more and had to deal with so much more. I mean, it's, it sounds like you've earned doing less. Ah, thanks. <laughs> I, I don't know if that was a, like a, a little like being hard on yourself for not doing as much or if you feel totally comfortable with that. But I don't think there's any need to like require yourself to be hyper productive or hyper energized all the time. Yeah, I, I do struggle with uh, like not feeling like I'm I'm doing enough. It's taken a lot of uh, of figuring out how to have unallocated time. I don't know what to do with myself <laughs> if I if I don't have like a plan for for what's happening. I uh, I don't know what to do. So if you do have like a couple hours of free time where there's nothing that you have to do, do you feel uncomfortable with that? I did. Um, it's hard for me to sit down and read a book anymore. I used to be able to do when I was a kid so much, so much more. Um, but I'm antsy. I need to be organizing something or cleaning something or, you know, I'll play video games sometimes and that'll, that'll eat, eat up a chunk and I'll force myself to not be doing something productive. Um, I do get stuck on the couch though. It's really easy for me to watch TV, but uh, I feel bad about it. The TV and video games always make a really, uh, really good sedative for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I have trouble. Like I was just telling Christine, if we have some time off in the evening or on a weekend and we don't have anything planned, and she's like, what do you want to do? That question, like, what do you want to do? And there's nothing that I have to do. There's like a weird terror. Like it's much easier when I have like a task that I know I need to be working on, but there's almost like this paralysis of choosing like what is the most important thing I should be doing or is it about that yeah, I don't know paralysis of choice is a phrase that I've used before I must have stolen it from somebody but yeah you could go to a movie you could do this you could do that what does my heart say what does my gut say am I sure I'm not missing anything that I have to do yeah, I wonder if that's just tied to time being given a dollar value if that's just part of wage slavery. Gotta be uh, on top of things and making money every minute because money is what matters. I don't want that anymore. We can do better. I hope so. I have to ask you the question now. Like, what kind of world do you want to be working towards or would you, would you like to find yourself in? What does a brighter future look like to you? Kind of a long time ago, I read at least most <laughs> of Ecotopia. And the bits that stuck in my mind were things like sustainable building materials and truly biodegradable plastics and stuff like that that I feel like are possible, if not being done, just not, you know, in a way that makes money. So it, we don't see it as much. I'd like to see things be more accessible to everybody. As much as I love my car and I love being able to get from one place to another ensconced in my little, my safe little bubble with doors that lock, <laughs> cars are the worst. But we have to get around so quickly. Um, and here in Seattle, like our transit system is not great. It takes me an hour to get somewhere that by car takes 15 minutes so it makes it really hard to give up that car. Yeah, especially if you have the sense that you should be maximizing your time usage all the time. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I would like to see people be able to move freely, better buses. Like, I don't I don't know what that looks like exactly, but be able to get around. 
Have you have you come up with a concise elevator pitch type answer to that question for yourself? Oh, fuck no. Like, I can get utopian. I can get, like, idealistic about it. But thinking mm-hmm. about, like, how would we actually do it? What would it actually look like in, like, concrete terms is incredibly difficult. It's like multiple overlapping domains of expertise I feel like would be required to try to figure out, which is kind of why I'm trying to have these conversations. So there would have to be a ton of big changes in order to make any of it feasible, but you have to get to big changes with little changes and nobody's agreeing on the little changes. You've talked a little bit about the Green New Deal and I really like the sound of that. I think that's going to help with the climate stuff at least and maybe get us working towards making any changes. Because we got to change it quick and we're still arguing with a significant chunk of the population here about whether climate change is even a thing. I mean, that's not going to last for long. I just hope that there won't be a significant population of Generation Z that are swayed by, you know, their elderly aunts, uncles, moms and dads who disagree. How can we keep them from being poisoned by their families? It's <laughs> a good question. <laughs> I, I'm more worried about, like, how do, we, how do we keep them from being poisoned by 4chan and alt-right internet culture? Shit, yeah, the alt-right stuff. I don't know how we could possibly fight the alt-right stuff. Mm-hmm. Appealing to people's humanity doesn't seem to be working at all. I don't know what to do about people who feel that way. Yeah, it's tough because uh, like fascism, from what I've read, has historically relied on the tolerance of liberalism to be at all concerned about like, how do we talk to these white supremacists? Like, how do we win them over through argument? And then we just give them a platform. And then now they're spreading their misinformation and disgusting points of view. Have you seen anything about whether or not social shaming does anything like calling people out for being Nazis? Does that work? Does that make them not Nazis anymore? Yeah, see, I can't imagine that it would. I mean, I, I think like deplatforming is great. Deplatforming yeah, is good. For sure. I just read something that said like people are in the alt-right because they have a deep sense of shame that there's like self-hatred powering it, which kind of makes sense with the like toxic masculinity business. So that would make shaming them ineffective if they're just like, yeah, I'm a piece of shit. What do you want? So hold on, though. We weren't math majors. Are you sure that shame plus shame doesn't equal good? Does shame cancel out the shame? Man, I just kind of like scanned through it. So I, I, I don't know how much credence to give. I, I can't even remember what website I was reading, but some reference to some study that found that shaming was ineffective because the whole thing is driven by shame. That's not like corrective shaming. But that could be wrong. I don't know. Corrective shaming. If you're like a generally mentally, emotionally healthy person and you're shamed, you might have the self-esteem to be able to stop and think, oh, maybe I'm doing something wrong and not have your basic sense of self-worth threatened. But if you don't have that... Do you think it's self-esteem or empathy? I'm sure it's both. Have the self-esteem to make a change. Hmm. Well, think about giving someone criticism that has a low sense of self-worth. In my experience, it's you get a strong emotional reaction to that. It's like any amount of shaming threatens their fundamental sense of self. Like it's why narcissists can't take criticism. Sure. They'll turn into raging or they'll put themselves into like this like victim place. But their fundamental lack of sense of self-worth seems to be driving that whole thing. 
So does shaming work? I don't know that it does. I mean, it may work before people are all in. You know what I mean? If people are just like flirting with yes white supremacy or anything like that you maybe you maybe shame those people but if they're like all in yeah and if they're all in then they've probably gotten a good healthy dose of like justification and being part of a group of people who think that they're great and bolstering that self-esteem yeah i mean you, you'll get like a new sense of identity you'll have like this tighter knit group that sees himself as being like them versus the world and they get it they've taken the red pill and so you know they can give each other that sense of esteem that they're not getting from the world in general it's hard to tell someone that their tribe that they're deriving a sense of worth and meaning from is toxic yeah especially if they're getting a lot of validation from it yeah like at that point you're almost talking about like how do you deconvert someone from like a toxic religion i feel like you run into the same problems I haven't uh, had the occasion to know very much about deconversion from religion. Like, what are the problems with that? What's kind of, I mean, like, you're not just fighting against someone's rational conception of, like, what they have decided to believe based on a set of principles that they've reasoned through. There's a lot going on unconsciously. There's a lot of, like, motivations that are hidden to them. So that, like, if you're getting your belief system that determines your community group and your sense of identity within that community group, if that's being questioned, it's generally triggers, like, a strong fear response or the fear response is masked with, like, an anger response. Mm -hmm. Like, a human being is going to try to do anything to push back against, like, questioning something that they've been so tied up with. Yeah, I, I, I can kind of say I didn't grow up with any sort of religious stuff so that I haven't had very many things that I've had to identify and dig out and um, hold in my hands and decide whether or not I actually believe it. But you have. And it was hard. Yeah, like it's hard to uh, give up your conception of who you thought you were. It's hard to give up like relationships to a group of people where those relationships are being built on this like shared understanding of the world. And then having to trade between your former sense of identity and those relationships for something completely foreign. Maybe in your case that you are building from scratch. Kind of. I mean, there are people who will like jump from one tribe to another. So they'll become like a huge like Steven Universe fan. Or they'll, like, get really into bowling or something like that, you know? Mm. Like, people generally want tribes. If you don't have a replacement to jump into, maybe a healthier one to jump into, it is hard to build your tribe from scratch. Or it's hard to not have one. So does does that sort of support the have your local Nazi over for tea? And, like, <laughs> give them a tribe? Is that is that where that goes? Maybe. But, well, then now you're allowing them to center the conversation. Now you're like giving them an ear. And that seems to be how like fascism gets its foothold. You know, people are like trying to rehabilitate them or trying to let them talk and lose in the court of public opinion. Mm. It might work on a personal level. It also just feels like giving your attention to the wrong party because you're not giving your attention to whatever vulnerable group of people would be targeted by their ideology. Like It feels like centering the wrong thing. Yeah, it does. And it wouldn't be so bad if these motherfuckers weren't shooting people. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care about their feelings otherwise. Yeah. If it didn't have real world material consequences, we could just let them go live out whatever. Be sad and feel insecure and... Yeah. But they are. I am open to hearing about what people who mm -hmm. are thinking about this harder than I am come up with as to what to do. What to do about the alt-rights. <laughs> 
Uh, I've certainly read a lot of opinions that they should just be, like, don't worry about their opinions, punch them. You know what I mean? Just, like, shut them up at all costs. And, uh, I yeah. don't, you know, my little, my little right. heart wants to be like, oh, we should be nice to all people. But if there really is a threat of, uh, groups of people being threatened with displacement or genocide, and the way to stop it is to punch people who willingly want to do that. <sighs> yeah, I guess we punch people. Yeah, I'm all for punching them, but I don't know that that makes them less inclined to be Nazis. I'm not sure that it makes you know people who admire them or are flirting with that ideology. I'm not sure that it makes it less attractive. You mentioned toxic masculinity. I mean, what's more masculine than getting punched in the face every now and again? In the, in, in the not toxic actually sense. Masculine. Just to be clear, I don't... Yeah. <laughs> in the toxic sense. Well, I mean, also, like, you're making them a martyr, right? Like, this kind of comes back to the question of violence in general. I just attended a uh, Extinction Rebellion Miami, their first meeting or whatever. So I'm trying to uh, get myself involved with this movement. But they're committed to nonviolence. And so I've been watching videos about their rationale, their thinking about that. Because like I said in the last episode, violence is complicated, you know? It's hard to look back at, like, the civil rights movement or Indian's independence movement, where there was a mixture of people committed to nonviolence and people who were, like, people want to say Gandhi got India its independence, but there was also, like, a militant Indian nationalism group that physically fought back. But Extinction Rebellion is kind of, their thinking seems to be like, if you ever sacrifice the moral high ground, then they're just going to come down with violent force, and you're not going to have the public on your side, which I I get, like, I understand that argument. We definitely saw that with Occupy, right? Yeah, once people start throwing rocks through the window of Starbucks, and cause much hand-wringing. <laughs> Property People damage. get so bummed out when Starbucks windows are broken. <laughs> You know, then the media will present them as the bad guys. But then even if you don't, like, even if everyone in Extinction Rebellion does commit themselves to nonviolence, there are agents provocateur. I don't know, the CIA will infiltrate the group and start throwing rocks or start getting people to throw rocks or whatever so that you can delegitimize the movement. And that's something that we've seen happen consistently throughout history. Or just Joe and Jane right-wing troublemaker who has heard about your little meetings and wants it to go badly. Like, it doesn't even need to be, like, CIA. It can just be some assholes. I feel like we saw that at the WTO protests. I don't know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff about the WTO process. But, I mean, it can just be somebody who's just trying to start shit and doesn't care about what your message is at all. Or just, like, looking back on Ferguson... I remember talking to people who were dismissive of that whole public demonstration wow. because, you know, they saw on Fox News that there was looting. I was like, well, the looters didn't necessarily have anything to do with the group of people who were protesting. Like, the protest can be completely legitimate, and also there are looters. But if Fox News can say, look, they're all just looting, they're all just, like, trying to get X or Y, that's going to convince some percentage of the population. It's hard to fight against a well-oiled propaganda machine. <laughs> oh boy it's so easy to to fuck things up for you people know, i don't think that talking is necessarily going to solve everything but i do think it is important to have these conversations the more people we can have these kinds of conversations with i think that can only have a positive effect definitely because we all just sort of have to choose what makes sense to us 
Like, if I want to continue being involved with Extinction Rebellion, which seems like the, a good course of action for me, I have to publicly commit to nonviolence, or else that movement could be undermined. And they won't have you. Yeah. On behalf of It's Now or Never, its guests, and anyone involved, we hereby condemn violence of any kind against any person, ever. Not only is violence always wrong, but it's also completely ineffective. Except for the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Iranian Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the Matrix Revolutions, every other successful revolution, the Zapatista Uprising, the Guangzhou Uprising, the American Civil War, Captain America's Civil War, every other successful civil war, the Stonewall Riots, the Detroit Riots, the Great Depression Food Riots, the Haymarket Riot, the Mount Pleasant Riot, every other successful riot, and all the other times violence was effective. Look, there's no question that violence is ugly, and that the less of it there is, the better. Personally, I'm a big fan of the Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain virtue ahimsa, refraining from causing harm, grounded in the recognition that to hurt another being is to hurt oneself. And yet, if someone you loved was being attacked, what are you willing to do to stop it? In case you haven't noticed, and I mean this sincerely, everyone you love is under attack. Climate change is already taking its toll in human lives, to say nothing of U.S. imperialism. Maybe, like me, you're lucky, and you're far enough away from the current disasters that you don't feel personally threatened. Yet. But can't you acknowledge, even if just on an intellectual level, that it's only a matter of time? before the disaster reaches your doorstep. To quote once again from Black Oak Clicks, we are all going to die. Ecocide is violence. Violence against me and you. Against animals, wild and domestic. Against the trees and the grass and the water and the mountains. I'm not calling for violence. I'm not telling anyone to take up arms. Violence is always a last resort, and I'm all for taking nonviolent resistance as far as it'll go. In fact, for the sake of my involvement in Extinction Rebellion, and for the good of the movement, I hereby renounce violence in all forms and vow to refrain from participating in any kind of violence against persons, police, private property, and the state. I commit myself to employing only nonviolent actions. That's the role I'm choosing to take. Those are the boundaries of my participation in resistance culture. But let's not pretend that violence is never morally justifiable, never effective, and never, in fact, our moral responsibility. Violence is happening right now. Almost all of us are, to some degree, complicit. To quote Derek Jensen in Deep Green Resistance, if you participate in the global economy, your hands are blood red because the global economy is murdering humans and non-humans the planet over. A half million children die every year as a direct result of so-called debt repayment from non-industrialized nations to industrialized nations. 60,000 people die every day from pollution. And what about all the people who are being forced off their land? 
There are a lot of people dying already. Failing to act in the face of atrocity is no answer. The grim reality is that both energy descent and biotic collapse will be more and more severe the more the dominant culture continues to destroy the basis for life on this planet. Like I said in the last episode, delighting in violence is distasteful. But maybe when every living being on the planet is at stake, let's at least be very mindful about who we condemn for their choice of resistance tactics. And I swear to God, if I hear anyone bitching about someone throwing a fucking milkshake, I'm going to lose all of my shit. now back to the podcast. Early on, although it might have been episode nine, when I feel like you were really laying it out there, you were talking about the different kinds of ways people have been interacting with the state of the future. You know, there are the people that, you know, kind of have their head in the sand. There are the people who are kind of looking at it out of the sides of their eyes. And there are people who are directly engaging and and learning and and having intense feelings about it. And there's probably other categories, too. And, and I found myself evaluating where I fall on that scale. Like, I don't feel like I've ever been head in the sand. But I don't feel like I've ever been like fully engaged either. Referring back to like how much I worked and the my medical issues, I don't feel like I ever had the room to fully engage that topic or any other important one either. Yeah. Well, I think that's entirely legitimate. I was very fortunate and privileged to have had space in my life to even get to the point that I am now. I don't think I'd be where I am now if I wasn't able to have that space. And I know that very few people do. That's actually another criticism that I've seen of Extinction Rebellion. It sort of requires a degree of privilege to be involved with it. Sure. Like, not only to have the time to be involved with it, but especially if you're going to get arrested. You can't have kids at home. You can't have a babysitter waiting on you. Yeah, for sure. But also just like to have the emotional space to process that kind of trauma. Yeah. Not everyone has that. The question is just like, can we get enough people, even if it's a small percentage, to get as far in that process as they can? Maybe you can't integrate all of that, but you can do a little bit. You know, you can make a little space in your life for it. Let's not focus on like getting everyone to be able to give everything, but more about how do we get people to make as much space as they can. And maybe that'll be enough. The little changes that go into big changes, um, educating people about legislation. Yeah, I think we need a solid mixture. I think we need people working on reform. I think we need people just working on agitating. I think people who know how to organize or have the capacity to learn how to organize can learn how to organize. If, if all someone can do is have this like conversation with someone, that's something. That's doing work. You know, That's making a space mm-hmm. for it. I think that's valuable. That, that was actually something I really got out of Deep Green Resistance when I read their little manifesto. The culture of resistance is tremendously important. 
it's harder for an individual person to stand up alone than it is for a group of people to stand up together. And it's easier for, even if it is just one person, it's easier for them to do it if they are being supported. Maybe they're the only one to chain themselves to a thing, but if they have people who say, hey, we're going to get you out of jail, like we're going to pay your bail, we're a whole community of people who can't chain themselves to a thing, but we'll pay your bail and we'll give you a place to live so that when you lose your job doing that, you won't, you know, starve and wind right. up on the street. That's good. I didn't feel called out by that, by the way. Not that you were like, I know you're not talking directly to me in the podcast, but uh, but I didn't feel like you talked about any of those groups of people in a disparaging way. I think you handled that very gently. I don't think that you will have alienated anybody with that. Well, it's good to hear. I appreciate that. I don't, I don't want to alienate people. No, that doesn't seem to be here. I do want to be intentional with like what kind of conversations I'm choosing to give a platform to. I didn't want to do a debate show. Yeah. But I certainly don't want to like piss a bunch of people off who could be allies. So that's, I really appreciate you saying that. There's been something that I've been trying to figure out, a question I've been trying to figure out how to ask you. And like, feel free to give me some corrective feedback on this because I, I don't want to do this with any degree of insensitivity. And if you're not comfortable answering the question or, or don't want to answer it as such, you know, by all means. But I'm curious, you had a year of your life where you were looking ahead at something that seemed like it was going to impact the rest of your life and continue to get worse. And I imagine that there was a lot of a lot of grieving around that. Absolutely. I feel like we are looking ahead right now on a wider scale, not a personal level. And certainly I, I, I wouldn't want to compare the climate change and stuff with what you had to go through, like way more intense than I can even imagine. But that's kind of my point is I'm kind of looking to you as someone who's had to do that kind of work, who's had to look ahead at an uncertain future that, you know, looks scary, that looks like it could get worse. And I don't know, do you have any lessons you learned or, or just anything about your story that you think would be worth sharing? I think that ultimately, I've come out of that with a pretty good positive attitude about life. But leading up to the first diagnosis, when I knew, I knew something was wrong. And I had seen doctors and they couldn't, they, they couldn't tell what it was because 34 year old women don't have heart conditions. <clears throat> Obviously untrue, but that's kind of a common thing that you'll hear women that do have heart conditions say is that doctors don't key into it very well because it's, it, it is an uncommon thing for women to have heart conditions, but obviously not impossible. Leading up to the first diagnosis, I was so tired and I was so depressed and I felt so, so scared because I don't have the kind of family that if I were to not be able to work anymore, I would just, I would just be homeless. <laughs> If I can't support myself, I, I was actually hoping for something, something terminal and just be done with it. I was so tired. Then when the, <clears throat> that first diagnosis came and it was progressive and incurable, I found that I didn't, I didn't want to die as much as I thought I did. I'm not going to say that I fought exactly, because I feel like that's a little overwrought, but I figured out how to 
take care of myself anyway. And there was a government program that uh, made that possible. And I don't know what it would be like if it weren't for that. But um, when it looked bad, like it wasn't going to get better, it was the kick I needed to find something that did work for me. As much as I would daydream about giving up, when push came to shove, I didn't. Anyway, that's a little, that's a little lot dark. I really appreciate you sharing that, though. I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Oh, yeah. I'm in therapy. That's good, though. Something that you said on one of your shows that got me thinking was that, like, personally, I don't care if humans go extinct. I don't have any emotional attachment to the fact that humans exist. I don't think that the amount of people who are happy and thriving and productive in a healthy way outweighs the amount of suffering there is in the world. And if humans are completely wiped off the face of the earth, I really just don't care. But you mentioned that it's not just humans, it's the animals as well. If we destroy this planet, animals will also die. And that got me much more than the human part, which makes me feel a little weird and antisocial. I mean, I get it, though. We at least have this idea that human beings have some agency that we can sort of choose for ourselves, whether we're like worthy of surviving, you know, based on our actions. Sure. And if we like destroy ourselves, then, well, we've we had it coming, I guess. Right. We did it to ourselves. But the coral reefs didn't do it to themselves. The countless species that are going extinct every day didn't do it to themselves. I believe that animals, at least some of them, have the capacity to experience joy and happiness. And I think they do so a lot easier than we do. And if we make the planet inhabitable for animals, as well as humans, that calculation about suffering, that goes way out of whack. Like if humans weren't around, I think the ledger book on happiness, you know, joy versus pain would be a lot more desirably balanced. And uh, robbing elephants of playing in the mud just because we can't get our shit together seems really unfair. Agreed. Not to like repeat myself too much, but it's not even that it's all humans who've chosen this. Yeah, it's definitely not all humans who have chosen this. The narrative is kind of that like people choose to be part of civilizations. Oh, no. I absolutely agree with you that there is no opting in or out anymore. There's nowhere to go. We truly don't have a choice. Yeah. You can't run anymore. There's nowhere to run to. Our backs are against the wall. I hope that, like you, we discover we want to live and we're willing to fight for it. Maybe it takes confronting mortality. Maybe it takes fighting ourselves with our back against the wall, facing down a threat that looks bigger than us to discover something in ourselves worth fighting for. I hope in some way this shared trauma, this like shared tragedy of it all, forces us to learn how to come together to create something worth living in. Yeah, I'm a little worried that for a non-negligible segment of the society, it's going to take Mad Max, and then it's far too late. And I love it. I, I love it as media. I love it as stories. Holy shit, do I never want to live through that. Oh my god. The road? I would not fight to live through that. The AMCAP future. 
at least it imbues your life with a sense of urgency. Like, you don't have to worry about going to work. You don't have to worry about paying your taxes. You just have to worry about surviving. And I can see how that kind of simplicity would be attractive. Well, I mean, that appeals to us, too. The hunter-gatherer thing. Yeah. But I want to I want to pick berries. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and not shoot things. <laughs> if we can somehow have the best of both worlds and, like, forage... And then also, like, bring home our berries and our mushrooms and munch on them while we're watching Star Trek. That would just be phenomenal. Wouldn't it? You asked the question earlier of what it looks like for me, like, the best outcome. And I think you nailed it. (laughs) Sonia, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And thanks for doing a podcast. It's, you know that I like it. I don't need to tell you anymore. That's it show's over thanks again to our guest sonia thanks to christine's vocal talents for the stop snacking forever bit thank you to eric from episode eight for sending me eric davis's new book high weirdness hell yeah really looking forward to digging into it let's talk about it soon radiohead just put out a bunch of previously unreleased recorded material on Bandcamp for 18 pounds proceeds go to extinction rebellion so that's pretty cool i mean maybe check that out if you like radiohead If you don't like Radiohead, like, why? A lot of music in this episode. In order of appearance, One Snow Day Short by Uncle Milk, Sleep Right by Mies Darling, 2.46am by Malaventura, Plague by Kai Angle, Galaxy Overload in the Circle of Eight by Ixtlan, Ultra Deep Field by Stellar Drone, Theraming by Mr. Fab and His Bag of Heads, Unexpected Hoedown and Bagging Area by Dr. Turtle, Slip by Glass Boy, Get Radical by Drums Like Machine Guns, Closing Track, this one, the one you're hearing, wait, that stuff. That's all called Modulation of the Spirit by Little Glass Men. All assets used and links to everything in the show notes, including sources for my whole info dump at the beginning. Holler at me on Twitter, Facebook, join the Discord, or email me at jeremy at itsnowerneverpodcast.com. Whatever you're into, I love hearing from listeners. If you're looking for something else to listen to now, Revolutionary Left Radio had an awesome debate episode on scientific socialism with the Seriously Wrong Boys and Alison Escalante. Ooh, and uh, Chapo Trap House just had Alan Moore on the show, so that's awesome. Thanks to Glenn for sending that one my way. Until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take the power back, take a moment to think of just flexibility, love, and trust. Man, this was a big fucking episode. Do you have a sign-off? Um, and that's the way that society crumbles you know you don't get there from going no i don't and and that's the way the gator clicks sometimes you gotta pick the berries and watch some star trek (laughs) i like that a lot